What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by Law, 6pm Tuesdays. Welcome to Done by Law on 3CR 8.55am and also welcome to those listening via various podcast platforms or streaming on 3cr.org.au. Your hosts tonight are Gemma and Sue. It's just after 6pm on Tuesday the 30th of November 2021. You're listening to content that was pre-recorded on Saturday the 27th of November. We start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations as the original and rightful custodians of the land that 3CR broadcasts from. We also acknowledge the First Nations custodians of the various lands of all of us joining this program tonight. We pay our respects to elders past and present and we acknowledge that this land was stolen, never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. G'day Gemma. Hi Sue, how are you? All right, how are you? Nearly oh. the end of COVID year. Nearly the end of COVID <laughs> well, the year, yes. second COVID year. <laughs> yes, I know, and let's just hope we don't lack it for a third. Um, tonight we're talking about breast milk and breast milk sharing, how it's used and how the law thinks about it. I'm really excited to, to talk about um, this evening's topic um, because I, I guess on a personal note, I gave birth um, for the first time about nine months ago. Um, and if you hear my baby in the background, that's that's part part of the parcel, I'm afraid. Um, so obviously, as you could imagine, I've been dealing with lots of body fluids um, in a way I haven't before. And one of them um, has been breast milk, which has become a daily um, and in the newborn phase, an hourly ritual of providing sustenance to my baby. And through this experience, I've learned that breast milk is this very complex um, fluid. The, the contents of breast milk, can be magical, it seems. Like it can be adjusted, um, you know, by the mother to account for certain vitamins that a baby might be deficient in um, or if the baby has a vulnerable immune system. Um, it has antibodies um, as well. So scientists sometimes consider that it, it, as a breast milk, it could be actually more similar to a living organism like a fungi or a coral um, than to a fluid that we would obviously sort of think of as milk. But aside from how magical, magical this, this substance is, I found it, um, yeah, very magical, magic, magical potion. Um, I found it took a lot of practice to get breastfeeding right. And I was astounded at how my body through that, that ritual, that practice did eventually become this machine um, to literally keep another human alive. And I've, upon returning to work recently, I've become more adapted sort of using that that part of this machine you know I can pump to extract milk I store it I put it in a bag I freeze it I put labels on it and I put it in the fridge uh, and many other women I know are obviously doing the same so it just feels like there's women quietly pumping away in corners um, in workplaces in homes using their bodies for the benefit of another um, so I estimate there's sort of thousands of fridges around Melbourne at the moment that are storing human breast milk but it obviously then makes you think, well, what if you can't breastfeed? Because obviously so many mothers um, struggle with breastfeeding and it just doesn't 
doesn't work for them. More recently, I've noticed that there are online platforms which have sprung up which can be used for sharing breast milk, um, which of course has made me wonder how the law treats milk. Is it considered human tissue or a food? And either option would suggest some sort of regulatory shift on how breast milk is used. And, you know, regulation makes people then consider whether that regulation is, is good or does it have negative consequences. So tonight, uh, after that very long intro, we're joined by our special <laughs> guest, Dr. Laura Griffin, um, who is a law lecturer at La Trobe University. Laura's research utilises a feminist post-colonial lens to interrogate the ways in which states relate to women and their bodies. This connects with various other areas of law, such as registration law and other laws regarding reproduction, personhood, gender and violence. Laura's other area of interest is Australian tort law which she uses to address social justice issues such as institutional child abuse, privacy, climate change or the stolen generations. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's fabulous to have you. That Just reading over your bio, it feels like you're the perfect guest to address this issue. So um, thank you so much for, get, for coming. Um, so before we get into the nitty gritty, I guess, can you give us a little bit about how you have come to focus on these ideas in your academic work? Sure. Um, like you, it was around becoming a mother myself, really. Um, so I had my daughter in 2014, and both before and after her birth, I remember going to my appointments at the Mercy Hospital and seeing a poster on the wall about the Mercy Milk Bank. Um, and I was kind of puzzled by it because the poster, you know, said, oh, we have a milk bank here and um, we would really welcome your financial financial contribution and I thought oh they don't want my milk okay this is interesting and I remember looking up their website and again it didn't actually encourage or invite people to donate milk it does now but at that time it didn't um, and so I sort of was a bit yeah puzzled or, or a bit disappointed by that um, when I came back from maternity leaves through a colleague in the law school I was put in touch with somebody uh, in another part of the university, Professor Lisa Amir, who was looking for a person in law to work on an article about uh, something about probiotics um, because she, you know, the use of probiotics for breastfeeding in particular. We worked really well together um, on that project and we had some really great discussions about breast milk and about milk sharing in particular. And that sort of re-sparked my curiosity and I thought, oh, I'd really love to delve into the legalities um, of milk sharing. And I noticed that even though a lot of people were writing on breast milk and, and milk sharing, nobody had come from the discipline of law to do this. Um, so with Lisa, I worked on a paper um, looking through those legalities and we presented it at a couple of um, conferences too. It's been a bit of a side project for both of us over the last few years. Yeah. Um, but I should mention that, you know, um, that's all I'm bringing to the table in terms of the legal side of things. A lot of the knowledge and the you know, information that I've used in my research about milk sharing really comes from all of those other disciplines and plenty of other researchers working in that area. So and I suppose applying a kind of feminist lens to why this um, breast milk has eluded attention, perhaps particularly yes. in the law. <laughs> um, would you care to comment on that at all? Yes, oh, it's complex. Um, look, I think, yeah, breast milk has eluded attention in the law for obvious reasons in, the ter in, in terms of the law has been occupied with, um, you know, commercial aspects of food, I guess, um, and 
in many cases, infant feeding, you know, at the breast is not commercialised. So, um, yeah, it hasn't really been a concern. That's been more of a sort of private women's business, um, I suppose. And, yeah, there are some areas of law that do relate. So breastfeeding itself is protected by law in various ways, um, like employment law and discrimination law. But in terms of milk sharing, uh, yeah, it's really quite invisible to law um, in different ways in different jurisdictions. And, yeah, I find that fascinating. Well, let's take let's take that that milk sharing um, idea and, and and delve a bit deeper there. Um, obviously, we've 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 sort of touched on this online platform sharing concept, which I think we'll we'll get into uh, later. But can you take us on a on a very brief a brief history of the um, of milk sharing? And because obviously we I'm aware that wet nurses have been a thing. I suspect as long as women have been breastfeeding, there's been wet nurses. How have, how have we developed over that space of time? Yes, um, absolutely. So I think, you know, as a social practice, obviously the history of milk sharing and, and wet nursing is, is entangled with things, you know, structures like race um, and class, capitalism, gender, all of that stuff. Um, so wet nursing in particular has been a colonial practice in many parts of the world, so it's shaped by institutions of slavery, of servitude, um, as well as being a service provided, you know, for money by uh, poor mothers to wealthier ones as well. So there's a lot of class relations things happening there. In Australia, um, paid wet nursing was quite a common employment opportunity for poor women in the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, or the early 20th century, really. Uh, but it fell out of favour by around the 1930s um, for a range of different reasons, mostly economic. Um, there was a well-documented shift. It's interesting in the, in the historians' accounts of uh, wet nursing in the US in particular, um, Janet Golden talks about a shift from it being treated as a commodity to being treated as a gift, something that people should um, want to give freely. Um, rather than being, rather than expecting payment. Um, and Australia broadly followed that same shift in the 20th century. Um, so, yeah, it's tied in with ideas about motherhood um, and race and community in those ways. Uh, it was once Australian women started to give birth in hospitals rather than at home. So, you know, especially by the end of uh, World War II, they were encouraged to express milk after feeding their own infant and the donor milk was then pooled and then provided to infants who needed it, particularly premature ones or ill ones. Um, and this is sort of the predecessors of um, the more recent breast milk banks, but they weren't called banks then. Uh, but then in, in the 1980s, when the HIV um, AIDS epidemic hit, they all closed. Um, and that's a real shame and a real loss, I think, um, for Australian breast milk sharing, you know, history, especially because that's a very manageable risk um, of HIV uh, sort of transmission. In terms of the informal sharing, really it's impossible to know historically, but obviously it's always happened, you know, between family members, between friends, between neighbours. When, when there's a baby who's hungry and the mother can't feed, other women have stepped in and provided that milk. Um, but it's not recorded in the archives, so yeah. A lot of it's sort of, uh, I guess, in the shadows. We don't, we just don't have that kind of right. like like so many feminist issues in history aren't documented. That's exactly right. Yeah. 
Secret um, women's business, women supporting it. women. That's it. Yeah, exactly. In the background. <laughs> and I guess so uh, if, if I was to engage with one of these online platforms now, do you know what the process would involve? It, can I literally take my little frozen bags of my breast milk down and donate them? What's the, how would it work? Yeah, that's a tricky question. Um, so most of the platforms, okay, there's a, there's a few different avenues. Um, the informal sort of platforms through social media and online uh, forums, um, you know, there's a, there's a few big ones as well as I'm sure more local, you know, community connections being made. There's a couple of big ones. So Eats on Feet is a big one. Human Milk for Human Babies um, is another. They are mostly just there providing a space for women who have milk to donate to connect with women or parents looking uh, for milk. And then really it's up to those individuals to negotiate, you know, how they're going to provide the milk, you know, where, where are they going to meet up, what are the terms of that. They, they do provide some guidelines um, and some sort of recommendations about uh, risk management strategies, you know, screening things and, and how to treat milk, uh, donor milk, once it's been received before it's fed to the baby. Um, but, yeah, it's quite, it's sort of hands-off in, in that sense of just providing the space and then it's up to the individuals connecting um, to arrange how it's really going to work. Yep. I see. And so I guess hearing that that kind of um, I wouldn't say ad hoc, but it's it's a it's a it's a it's a very personal sort of um, yes. way of um, using your milk and I guess putting on the hat of the typical the law, if the law yes. was going to wear a hat, it doesn't <laughs> like those kind of grey areas, particularly yeah, exactly. in areas. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's 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 very messy and personal, as you say. And for a lot of women, um, that process of providing the milk, you know, is a is a deeply personal one. There's plenty of studies showing the the meaningfulness, the significance um, of that relationship and that connection that's formed. I mean, in some cultures in the world. Um, that, that process of, of wet nursing or cross-nursing, cross cross-feeding does create kinship relations. You know, in Islamic law, for example, um, two babies who fed at the same breast, the same woman's breast, become milk uh, siblings, milk brothers or milk sisters, and they cannot marry in the future. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there are, there are forms of law, you know, Indigenous laws of different kinds, uh, Islamic law that recognizes those kinship relations, but our law doesn't quite know what to do with these milk connections between people. So, does that mean they're not regulated at all? No, these informal um, sites and these these informal sharing practices are not regulated at all. That's right. So, which what is would kind happen? of astounding. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So, what would happen if if something went wrong? Mm. Good question. Um, yeah. Well, what can go I, wrong? Like, yeah, yeah what can go wrong? There are, there are some things that can go wrong, particularly for the, the health of the infant, yeah. So there are, there are risks around um, the donor themselves, what's, what's going on with their health status. You know, they might um, have an infection that could be passed on, uh, you know, things about drugs or alcohol consumption, particular medications that can be passed through. 
milk. Also, there are risks that it can arise from, you know, hygiene uh, and contamination risks as well. And also there are, there are risks relating to the kind of storage and transport of milk um, as well. So, yeah, there's a bunch of different risks. There are definitely strategies to manage those. Um, but as I say, in those informal settings, it's really on the individuals to inform themselves about the risks and to make sure that they're taking those steps. And if something goes wrong, well, it's very difficult even to know, you know, unless it was a really serious, you know, significant sort of health problem that arose from it, it would be very difficult to know. It would be almost impossible to prove. Mm. Um, and, yeah, because of the kind of hazy legality of these exchanges, uh, I think anybody who was concerned might feel a little bit hesitant about coming forward to anybody on it might not even be necessarily obvious who to come forward to, you know, and how, what are the obligations and what are their rights? It's really unclear. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, as someone who practices uh, in tort law, uh, if somebody came to me and said, look, I think, you know, my baby has been harmed from, from because they've used breast milk through this bank, I honestly wouldn't know you'd have to really think creatively about, well, is there a duty and does that yes. duty, is that duty on the platform? Um, that's that, right. And that's, you're into a, a very creative space, which of course law loves, but. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty there. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's true. And, and I think the platforms, like I don't want to be, you know, sounding like I'm characterising them as reckless. I think they're doing a fantastic service and I think they do really well at advertising you know, the risks and encouraging people to take steps um, to protect themselves against those risks. But, yeah, it's still it's still not ideal. I should mention, just to correct the language, those mm. kinds of informal sharing arrangements are not milk banks. Milk banks are another kind of milk sharing that is quite separate um, ah, to those. I yeah. thank you. Okay. Yes, so milk banks in Australia are much more formalised, um, almost all of them are anyway, and they tend to be located in hospitals with NICUs, so neonatal intensive care units. They take donor milk from women who have birthed in those hospitals and, uh, you know, they do very thorough screening, they do testing of the milk, they process the milk, pasteurise it, things like that, um, and then provide it only to infants in those NICUs. Um, so that's not providing to the community generally. Um, and again, like the example, you know, that I said about Mercy Milk Bank when I was going to Mercy, they, their um, ability to advertise and to get donor milk is constrained. And that mm. is because of law, um, as well as other things, as well as resourcing, you know, all, all sorts of things. But yeah, law does come in there. So we've got a very big, very um, legally uncertain informal practice in the community and a quite restricted um, practice in the formal milk banks only serving infants in hospital. Yeah. And, and to um, drill down, I guess, into that latter point about the milk banks, is the area of law that um, meshes over that OHS law or are we what kind of area of law? So <laughs> this is the other complexity. I know I keep saying this for answer. It's complicated. All of the jurisdictions in Australia um, follow a slightly different approaches. So they, mm -hmm. they each have 
different food legislation, they each have different human tissue legislation. And whether milk banks have to comply with food or human tissue or both depends upon the jurisdiction. And it sounds like, you know, it's really depended upon the discretion of the health minister at the time that the milk bank is being created and, and navigating what they can and can't do. Um, so there's not a uniform approach um, across Australia. And yeah, they, they for example, in Victoria, um, the Mercy Milk Bank has had to comply with human tissue legislation, which has, yeah, constrained its ability to, um, you know, communicate about its operations. It, it's gotten a bit better now. And now we have Red Cross has its milk banks um, that are growing. Um, but yeah, it's been tricky in terms of what are the compliance uh, requirements for those milk banks in different places. For sure. Wow, um, that, that definition stuff is really fascinating. Human tissue, not human tissue. How do we classify this? And in the hands of one person in each yeah. of the jurisdictions. Um, do you have an opinion, Laura, as to if it's human tissue or food? Look, it's complex. You're looking at the human tissue legislation, it's pretty obvious that they never contemplated milk, mm. um, particularly <laughs> because it's, you know, it's drafted around uh, organs for transplant, basically. It's about organs and transplantation. And there are exceptions built in for blood. There are exceptions built in for reproductive, um, you know, sperm and eggs, for example, but uh, no mention of milk. And this, the, the thing is, you look at the food legislation and it's the same. They might have some discussion of milk, but there's it refers to milking animals, which, can't, you know, is presumably meant to exclude humans. Um, and, yeah, it's just not really catered for as a possible, you know, there's things like the, the food, the site of the food business, for example, food premises. What would be the food premises <laughs> for a lactating mother? Is it her body? So this is, you know, it's really interesting, but it's also frustrating because it shows that human milk obviously wasn't contemplated by the drafters of any of this legislation, the food or human tissue. The blokes. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Maybe there's oh, a new definition in there called just magic yeah. women's. Magic potions. Stuff. Magic women's potions. Liquid, yes. liquid gold, liquid gold. Get really witchy. Yes. Um, <laughs> a lot of people been, we've been focusing on, on, on our jurisdiction, you know, because that's how we understand the law to work in our lives. But obviously women are everywhere. How do you, uh, do you know how other um, uh, areas or, you know, practices are replicated across the world or is this something that's only been contemplated in the West? Oh, no, it's it's all over the place. And this is where, you know, it gets really fascinating. And I remember being so blown away the first time I looked to read generally about what's happening in other in other countries. Um, the superstar um, absolutely in this story is Brazil. So Brazil mm. is absolutely the world leader in terms of milk banking. They have over 200 milk banks throughout the country over 100 more collection points throughout the country. Uh, you know, they have hundreds of thousands of um, litres of milk being processed through these milk banks. 
And it's so well enmeshed with the public health system that when a new mother is discharged from hospital after giving birth, she is referred to her local milk bank. And the milk bank doesn't, you know, it's not just about getting and providing milk. It's also a place where training and advice is provided around breastfeeding and community breastfeeding counsellors are trained there too to also work you know, more broadly in the community. It's such a beautiful thing, you know, and throughout Europe there are other models also followed. Uh, Norway is another example. They have uh, great um, breast milk banks. They don't pasteurise their milk, which is a little bit different, and they pay their donors, which, again, is a little mm. bit different. So different jurisdictions have taken different approaches, but it shows that it's absolutely possible to have a much more accessible network of milk banks to get the milk from all of these willing donors and to and to provide it more effectively to more families uh, and Australia just is so far behind you know in this in this respect compared to so many other places yeah it sounds like um changing the culture around um how women are supported really in yes. their postpartum period to encourage uh breastfeeding or to encourage um, support for whatever that uh, feeding their baby looks like. Um, and if we get that right, then maybe the sort of the second questions about how we, you know, ensure that there's a, a strong and robust system that can support breast banks or breast banks, breast milk banks. That's a whole nother episode. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Um, oh, yeah, I completely agree. I think, you know, it's really, it's complex. And I know that questions around infant feeding and around women's bodies get very controversial. And, and you know, but I don't think anybody is advocating more regulation in order to shut down informal sharing. You know, we um, all see that that's a, that can be a great thing. Um, we also, though, see, you know, even the WHO says breast, breastfeeding is the best. If that's not possible, donor milk is the next best thing. And only after that, infant formula should be resorted to. But in Australia, the reality is that for the vast majority of parents, you know, if breastfeeding is difficult, formula is a very easily available second option. They may not know or they may not be comfortable with the, the mechanisms of sharing that are accessible to them. And that can be changed. I think we're seeing some steps in the right direction. Um, but yeah, it's going to take going to take more to make that really truly an option for parents across Australia I think. Laura that's just been such a fascinating discussion um, uh, tonight thank you so much uh, for joining us and for sharing your insights on on breast milk and breast milk sharing which I think um, hopefully a lot of our listeners will have maybe thought about for the first time. Thank you so much it's been great. Yeah thanks Laura. Um, well, but we have to go now because we're out of time. <laughs> so um, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. You've been listening to Gemma and Sue and Laura talking about legal, legal stuff around um, breast milk sharing and breast milk banks. And Done by Law, we'll be back again next Tuesday at 6 p.m. You've been listening to us on 3CR 855 a.m., or 3cr.org.au. And if you stay tuned now, you'll hear the voices of West Papua. It's time to speak up, speak out and speak loud. 
from an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence. Introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434-136-501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434-136-501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter.